Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. This week, I'm delighted to welcome none other than Gareth Rain onto the podcast to talk about all things primary education. Gareth is a head teacher and the mastermind behind the extremely successful Research Ed Cymru. In this episode, we discuss his approach to leadership, professional development, organizing a Research Ed event, and much, much more. I have absolutely no doubt that you're going to love this episode. So without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. Thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you here today. You're very welcome, Kieran. It's lovely to be with you. So those who are familiar with the with the podcast will know that we start with our guests' numbers just to get a sense of who they are and where they're they're from. And so my first question is years as a teacher. I started teaching in 2000, so 21 years now. Years as a head teacher. So since, since November 2010, so um, in my 11th year now, across two schools. Excellent. One of those is a very recent, recent move and something we'll come to later on, isn't it? Yes. Um, started in my current post in April of 2020. So one month into the first lockdown, which was a really interesting thing to do. <laughs> first year group taught? Year five. Last year group taught? Also year five. I spent most of my time teaching year five and year six, although I did teach year three for a while. And I also had a bit of a PPA role when I was between going from a teaching job to a deputy heads job. I had um, about half a term of teaching nursery to year six, which was a great experience. Really helpful actually going into a deputy heads role. Yeah, I think I had a chance to do that for a year and I was at the time covering my wife's nursery class um, amongst all the other classes. And it was, it was it was like a formative year you know it had a really big impact in terms of being able to see the whole the whole journey in, in school yeah i think everybody should should have experiences of the whole school in which they're teaching so whether they're in a 3 to 16 school it would be great for them to have experiences within the primary and the secondary parts and if just within a primary school like us then definitely within the foundation phase as we call it in wales and in key stage two have you translated those numbers for English listeners or are they also called year one to yeah. six? Yeah, yeah, exactly the same, exactly the same in England and in Wales. I know things are slightly different in Scotland and of course in, in other countries and so on, but Wales and England exactly the same. Most important year group? Year one. I think year one is where the magic happens. So children have really important foundational experiences within nursery reception for those who, who attend nursery, of course. And in year one, when they really now start to read and write and their number skills improve rapidly, I find what happens in year one for most children, because of course, some children take off a little bit earlier or a little bit later in those skills, but I, I find it incredible. And my wife, who's also a teacher, has spent most of her time teaching in year one. And when I look at her book teacher from the start of the year to the end of the year, I'm just absolutely amazed every single time. It seems to surprise me every year. Excellent. Totally agree with that. And year one is definitely a very popular answer whenever I ask that question. What about your favourite year group? I don't really have one. I've, like I said, I spent most of my time in year five and in year six. But then I absolutely love going in and spending time in nursery reception. I, I can't say I have a favourite year group because they're just all fantastic to be with for all different sorts of reasons. Yeah, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. And then number of tweets. 
about 5,600. Um, I've been on Twitter since 2008 or nine, so a long time on Twitter, but I don't post a great deal, I would say. It's more um, reading, using it as a way into other things. So something will be said or written that's really interesting, and I'll use that then as a way of doing some more research or looking at other things. But yeah, I post a bit, uh, retweet quite a bit, but, but mainly dipping in and looking at what others are saying. I think 5,000 is a very respectable number, you know, it, it, it seems about the right number, um, but then I'm biased because that's also probably the <laughs> number that I've done. So you're a, a teacher, head teacher, mastermind behind Research Aid Cymru, and a contributor to the conversation around the curriculum for Wales. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. I'm not sure mastermind is the right term for, for Research Aid Cymru, but it was great to be involved. So what happened with Research Aid Cymru was that I'd had a bit of contact with Daisy Christodoulou back in 2000, maybe 16, certainly in 17. And she'd been talking about some of the things that I'd been doing in my school with Tom Bennett. And then Tom Bennett sent me a message one day saying, um, we'd like to bring Research Ed to Wales. Would you like to help to, to organise this with me? And so from there, uh, I tried to get a venue, uh, which was actually pretty hard. Um, it was quite difficult trying to get a venue. There were lots of people who hadn't heard of Research Ed, or if they had at that time, maybe they were a little bit worried in Wales about the kind of political associations. Not, not overly negative, but just a little bit of concern, I would say. And so getting a venue wasn't the easiest thing. Um, but when we eventually got a partnership then with Cardiff High, um, everything came into place. And the team at Cardiff High, in terms of the hosting arrangements, were absolutely brilliant. Um, James Wise, who, who I know you know, Kieran, he was fantastic in terms of his organisation um, and, and the publicity side of things. And then my role really was, first of all, just making sure that all that happened, but then organising everything to do with the speakers. So inviting speakers, linking up with um, kind of the, the approval of the speakers and then making sure everybody got there on time uh, and on the right day. Yeah, so maybe not mastermind, but certainly got things going and made sure that it happened. It was, it was a, a great experience. Which is no mean feat, considering that uh, there were, what, six storms in February, and one of them just happened to be in the middle of the, <laughs> the weekend. Of Storm Dennis was, was quite incredible. We, would, we were obviously keeping our eye on the news. This was back in February of 2020, so COVID was starting to be, a, or more coronavirus, people were calling it still then. So coronavirus was really being talked about quite a lot at this stage, and so we were worried that um, that could have some sort of an impact, and we were saying... You know, let's hope it doesn't come, let's hope it doesn't, things don't close down. Um, what we hadn't anticipated was Storm Dennis. So on the day of uh, the Friday, the day before Research Ed Cymru, Storm Dennis really, really hit, you know, the biggest storm in years. So, yeah, we, we were very lucky um, with everything that went on. But in some ways, almost, that, that kind of added to the atmosphere of the event. The fact that everybody had had some kind of hardship in getting there. Um, and it, it just was, as you know, uh, as a speaker there on the day and a brilliant job you did. Um, it was something that was uh, very, very positive, real high spirits from everybody on the day. It was great. It was. Yeah, I can see what you mean, because, you know, it's almost like the fact that we'd all put effort into getting there. There was an, a, an additional layer of camaraderie. So what about your journey as a teacher? Where did it start and how did you get to where you are now? When I started teaching back in 2000, uh, I, I thought actually that I might teach for a couple of years and then maybe go traveling. I knew I wanted to teach, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to just kind of teach and stay in Cardiff and, and, and so on. I wasn't sure where that would go. But after a great year, uh, I met my wife in the school. That was actually in a school called St. Peter's, 
where I've actually now come back as the head. So that's quite strange to have, to have gone full circle. So I taught there for about four and a half years and then wanted to challenge myself, wanted a bit of a change. Applied for a deputy head teacher's position and I was 24, I think, when I applied, 25 at the interviews maybe, and just really did genuinely go into it thinking, well, this will be a good practice. That, you know, they probably won't take me seriously at this age. Um, and maybe the, the lack of nerves, because I really wasn't expected to get it and didn't even myself expect to get it, was successful and, and got that job at that stage. And whilst I was there, um, the head teacher had said to me, oh, you, know, you, you should think about maybe doing some other kind of training. And so many things in my career, kind of things happen, not exactly by chance, but just with the unusual timing, I would say. Uh, and, and I think the day or maybe even the next day that she said that, some flyers came into the school for a new course that was being run, a master's in Catholic education, so leadership in Catholic schools, being run by St Mary's University in Twickenham. And they were running it remotely and they were going to run a course in Cardiff. So I started doing my master's in Catholic school leadership. Um, and then I also did my MPQH at the same time. My wife is an absolute saint, you know, if they're kind of with the Olympics or not, if they're gold medals in patience and picking up the slack of things I wasn't doing in the home, um, she should really get a gold medal in that. But uh, looking back, I would say that that was actually in some ways good grounding because I did lots and lots of reading and research through those courses and have never stopped ever since. So it really where was my love of reading about our job, our amazing job that we do. That really came from doing the masters, I would say. Like all things, it, it kind of if you can cope with it, then it makes you stronger for whatever might come next in your career. Went on then to be a head teacher from 2010 in a school just outside Cardiff in Penarth. Um, when I joined the school, there were five percent free school meals, so went from um, an area of multiple deprivation within Wales, quite high on the deprivation index, to a very affluent school. Again, a really really good experience there. So ten years as head in St Joseph's School. And I don't know how much you would want me to talk about that, Kieran, but I would I, I think about my time in St. Joe's as sort of pre-2015 and post-2015, because everything seemed to change for me and my views of education in around 2015. Tell us more about 2015. What happened and how did that how did that change your sort of role as head teacher, your view of the role of head teacher? So when I joined St. Joseph's School, um, I went in thinking and saying that it was all going to be about teaching and learning, but it didn't work out that way in the first couple of years. Uh, the buildings weren't in a great state of repair, needed to focus on how can I improve the environment to make learning better th than it kind of was at that time, because I felt that it was actually getting in the way of teaching and learning. Read some books on classroom um, school architecture, classroom design, furniture design, and, and although I'd said I wouldn't be a head teacher that focuses a lot just on buildings and budgets, that's exactly what I had to do for a couple of years. So the school also had about a £50,000 deficit. It had had about um, 11 of the last 15 years, I think, in deficit. So we needed to improve the building, but at the same time, we didn't have the money to do it. I had lots of meetings with architects and furniture designers and planners. Again, taking that idea of reading and research from the courses that I'd done into then this kind of an approach, how can we not just then improve the building so it's, it's bigger spaces that are better for the children in terms of their kind of physical well-being, having more room in which to teach, but also how can you enhance learning through the, the design of the classroom? So I did lots of work on that um, and did some really interesting things and some things that I wouldn't do again, um, like, for instance, uh, using you know, like gym balls instead of chairs and, you know, th things like this that at that time were thought to maybe be the, the future of helping children to sit well in their posture and handwriting. 
just trial dad in one part of one classroom and you know pencils coming in them and bursting and bouncing around the room as you walk through and <laughs> things like that didn't quite work out but other things really did so looking at um the agile nature of a classroom making it whatever you wanted to be and not not just even within one lesson but that part of a lesson where you could have individual desks for children going to groups going to twos and threes whatever you wanted the room to be for how you wanted to teach and how you wanted the children to learn allowing the, the room to, to be set up in that way um, was something that was quite influential in my thinking at that time and, and still is in case it's two and in the foundation phase looking at sort of Montessori you know the kind of natural materials not overly stimulating environment and that's what was really important for me is this idea of visual noise lots of things getting in the way of learning when you know draping from the ceiling and surrounding displays and bright colors primary colors lots of things that I did some research back in 2010 11 12 around that and around how that actually gets in the way of learning it can impede so what can you do instead especially for younger learners um, so learned a lot about that then and tried to put all that into place and so we, 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 from the very next year on, we never had a deficit budget ever again. Um, and, and the buildings got to the stage where we were having, within sort of three or four years, we were having schools coming from North Wales and West Wales and, and coming from all over to look at this school that was doing unusual and interesting things in terms of their classroom design. And, and then when the focus then kind of into about 2012, 13, switched more back to the teaching and learning, was, was probably interested in the progressive side of things then, the ideas of 21st century skills, that was very much in vogue at that time. Um, you know, thinking hats, thinking maps, all, all of that stuff that we kind of talk about and read about on Twitter all of the time now, where people say, oh, I can't believe I did that. And actually, um, I don't think I can't believe I did that because I learned so much from, from doing those things, maybe a little bit as a teacher myself, but also helping others to learn about what we thought was, was good research at that time. Never really went down the learning styles route, but definitely did lots on, on thinking, um, and did lots on experiential learning. So children trying to learn literacy and numeracy through other parts of the curriculum and became really interested in something called the Leonardo effect, which was trying to learn through art and science, where you give children great experiences, art, artifacts, um, put things out for them so that it really stimulates their interest. And then the idea is the literacy and numeracy are developed from that rather than being taught as sort of discrete subjects. This was a really interesting time, a really interesting period, because this was very much um, growing in popularity in South Wales, especially. Um, and again, we had some interest where people came to see this kind of work. And, uh, and, and at first, after about a year, I thought this was great. And, and we did some really fantastic things, like when we had a flight topic, we got a helicopter to come and land on the school field. And we kind of flew rockets and built kites and got a model aeroplane club to come in. And, owls flying in the school and, and all these great and interesting things which really did engage and grab children's attention and at first their skills and knowledge kind of increased and we thought wow this way of working is so interesting engaging the children love coming to school more than they ever have it's really enthusing them and now their learning is better because of that in in all measurable ways children seem to be doing better than they ever had before and then after about 18 months of this, almost two years, we actually saw not just a plateau, but maybe even a slide in children's outcomes and, and kind of started to think, well, what's going on here? We're doing these great things, but we, we didn't feel that children were learning in the best possible way. And then at that time, we had an Eston inspection. So our version of Ofsted and everything went well, goods across the board, a little bit of excellent. 
and, and they didn't really say that there was anything wrong with what we were doing, but they didn't think it was excellent either. And some of the interesting things that they noticed was that most children were engaged, but in each room there were always two or three who were a bit wriggly, who weren't really focused, who were maybe kind of staring out the window. And they said that behaviour was excellent in terms of, you know, there were no fights, everyone was getting on, all of those things. But behaviour for learning, as, as everybody called it at that stage, maybe wasn't really excellent. And if we were to move from the good to the excellent, we had to engage more all of the children all of the time in all of the work, which, which I felt was maybe an unrealistic ambition at that stage. But I took it up, you know, took it on board and, and, and I thought, well, we actually don't think that this is working for our children in the best possible way either. There's probably better things that we can do. So again, with this idea of research and reading, uh, lots of things came together again at this time. So this was in the March 2015. Successful Futures was published in February 2015, which was the seminal document in Wales that the whole of the new curriculum is based on. This was the most important document to be published probably in the history of Welsh education. So we said, well, if we're going to change things and build a new curriculum in our school, let's do it in line with the new curriculum. You know, we'd be stupid not to. We have to make sure everyone's going to be working towards a new curriculum. Let's try and make sure that the principles of successful futures are in what we do next. But what does the research say? Where, where is the best evidence available to us about what works in schools? And an evidence-based practice was being talked about at that time. Maybe people talk about evidence in form now and best bets and so on. In that very month in March, on the same week as the inspection, there was a, a Guardian article about Doug Lamov and Teach Like a Champion and about maybe this revolution that might come in terms of how children are taught. And I thought this was really interesting. And so I wanted to look into this a little bit more. And I'd heard somebody speak on Radio 4 about Edie Hirsch and listened to a, a radio programme with then Edie Hirsch and thought his ideas were really interesting. They weren't the same as what we were doing in St Joseph's, but they were probably more like the way that I taught in the classroom. And I thought, okay, this seems really interesting. I wanted to know more. So I bought Cultural Literacy and Teacher a Champion, bought Teacher a Champion kind of in print on Kindle and the audiobook. you know, listened to it on the way to work, on the way back from work when I was ironing, whatever I was doing, I was kind of listening to it as well as, well as reading it, try and get to know it as well as I possibly could. And then absolutely loved Cultural Literacy. That led on to Dan Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School, which then led on to Seven Myths About Education. So I kind of read all of these books in about maybe a year, alongside a few other things. But these four books just stood out so much compared to anything I'd ever read before. And I kind of called them the four Ds, you know, with Daisy, Doug, Dan. And I was delighted when I learned that E.D. Hirsch's own as Don then. The four Ds influenced my practice and my ideas more than anything else before or since. I decided, and although I'm kind of one person in an organisation, I went to the governors, I went to the staff, and I said, I think this needs to be the future of our school. So this is probably now early 2016. I'm really interested in this thing called core knowledge. Not only do I want to know more about it, I want to go and see it in action. And I talked to the governors about maybe going out to the US to try and see a core knowledge school. And then I became what I would call an edu stalker. So I phoned Daisy Christodoulou in ARC schools and said, um, sorry for kind of the unsolicited uh, contact, but I'm a head teacher in South Wales. I'm really interested in your book. Do you mind having a chat with me about your work? And she said, yeah, great. You know, let's set up a call. She'd spent about 45, 50 minutes chatting with me and my deputy about what she was doing in art schools and what she believed in and what, why she had the ideas to write her, her brilliant book, Seven Myths. And she was so helpful. She was brilliant. I looked up core knowledge schools in America and decided that the one in Virginia, which was a school of distinction, looked really interesting. 
And I did that because I also thought, well, if I'm in Virginia, where Dan Willingham works, maybe I'll get to go meet Dan Willingham. So I made contact with this school, spent about an hour on the phone to a head teacher and her curriculum lead. And they just thought, who's this guy from Wales? Where's Wales? Who's this guy? Why is he phoning us? What does he want? And I said, I love the idea of your curriculum and what you do. It looks amazing. Why are you a school of distinction? How does it work? Um, and found out that the, the head there was quite you know, inspirational. Her name was Dr. Zizios. Uh, and the name of the school was the Lyles Crouch Traditional Academy. And I said, I would like to come and see your school. And, and she said, oh, OK, that sounds interesting. Thinking, of course, at the end of the call, nothing would happen because of this. We started to do some work on this before then making this visit. Some of the work that we'd done, again, kind of got a little bit of attention. And I was invited to go and speak at a pioneer conference. And in Wales, with the new curriculum, we had pioneer schools. So it was about 100 schools who were driving the new curriculum. They were actually creating the curriculum. It was the first time any country in the world had said that we could write a curriculum using the existing school staff, not experts in universities or anywhere else. And so I was invited to go and speak at a conference in Swansea about my um, experiences with Leonardo Effect. And when I was there, the lady who organised the conference said, oh, we think St. Joe should come and be a pioneer school. We think your experiences would be really valuable. And then becoming a pioneer school not only was interesting because it gave you the freedom to experiment and explore, but it gave you £30,000 a year. So that also then gave you funding to do great work, to release senior leaders from the classroom, to be able to do even more research, and to be able to do things like go and school visits. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I spent uh, about £1,500 of that money to go and seek practice in America, in, in Virginia, which was quite different to what anyone else was looking at as a pioneer school. But this was the whole point of it, is that we were supposed to find out what the best education systems in the world were doing, and I felt that this school wasn't the same as what was going on in Finland, um, wasn't the same as New Zealand and Canada, where lots of other places people were looking, but seemed really interesting to me. So I went out to, to Virginia with a group of five other heads. We went to this school and I contacted Dan Willingham to say, I'm going to this school in Virginia. Can I come and meet you, please? I really want to talk about your book. I was so fascinated by why don't students like school. Can you tell me more? And he, of course, being the lovely guy that he is, he said, yes, come along. We'll go for lunch. We'll have a chat. I'll tell you all about it. Oh, and by the way, when, when you're here, would you like me to bring Don Hirsch along and you can chat with him as well? So, uh, so, so of course, you know, jumped at that chance. Um, so we went out, we went to this school, met Hirsch and Willingham, chatted about it and, and, and doing these things, chatting with Daisy, chatting with Dan and so on, was incredible to kind of get into the skin of, of what they were doing, to kind of get in between the details of the book. So I was able to say, when you say this, why, why did you say it? And, and where did you get these ideas from? And I know that, of course, you can go to the footnotes or you can go to the references or whatever else. But to be able to ask the person and say, what about that study? Tell me about that. And to hear it from the horse's mouth was just a brilliant, brilliant experience. And so he was saying, you know, tell me about this new curriculum in Wales. And, and I was saying, where do you think it might go well? And where do you think it might go wrong? And some of the things that he shared for over those few hours that we spent were, were, were brilliant. So things like, you know, he was saying, so you have reading tests in Wales, but it, it could be about anything. And I was saying, yes, this year's one was about a trip to North Wales going on a barge over a, a viaduct. And last year's was about newts and the other one was about pirates. And, and he was saying, do you study newts and pirates? And I was saying, no. And he said, well, what, what are you doing a reading test about them then? Reading tests are about knowledge. And he said, you know, if you haven't studied those things, you're not going to get the results that you want. Um, you know, so, so I knew that from reading his book, but to actually then explore that and to talk more about it, was, was just incredible. And he said, look, you need to go back and if you have any kind of influence at all, 
go back and talk to people and say, stop doing these tests or, or even better, have a common curriculum or at least aspects of a common curriculum and then test based on these things. You know, then you'll find out what you want to find out. So there were all these sorts of things and chatting with Hirsch about the history of core knowledge and cultural literacy and his foundations and where he got his ideas from. You know, it was just absolutely fascinating. And they kind of say, you know, don't meet, meet your heroes. And these were my educational heroes at this time and still are. And they were brilliant. You know, I would absolutely say everyone go meet your heroes. They, they were amazing. It, it was such a good thing to do. And so chatting with Hirsch about kind of political views, he would say, you know, he said he's a socialist, which in America is, you know, quite a big deal to say this openly. But he said that it seems to be the, the you know, the conservative, the right wing side of things that like his ideas most, both at home and abroad. Um, and he said that, the biggest regret he has in his, in his work life was that fellow socialists and fellow left-wing people were the ones who were the most hostile to his ideas. And he was saying, you know, I, I just wish they would realise that if we want to help children living in deprivation, and especially in his eyes, this is how we're going to help them. This is how we're going to help them to have a much better life. And I can't believe that people don't see this. And, and you know, and, and just to chat about those things and chat about his experiences was absolutely brilliant. So all of these ideas then kind of took back to St. Joseph's uh, and our curriculum was based around all of these things. And then just carried on in this way. So contacted Doug Lamov and said, you're coming to London to do training and I'm attending. Can we go for dinner? Can we chat about the ideas? And he said, yeah, of course we can go for dinner. And, you know, oh, by the way, I'd love to go and see King Lear in, in the Globe. And would you like to come along with us? And Daisy Christodoulou came and, you know, we had dinner and we chatted and we said about, tell me about teaching a champion and again, and, you know, getting below all of the ideas of beneath, beneath the book, as well as the book themselves, but kind of underneath, what did you see then? What didn't you write about? What, what is interesting to you outside of the book? What are you doing next? You know, all of these things were, were brilliant formative experiences for where my future thinking and work kind of went. So I know that's a much longer answer than you were probably expecting, Kieran. But, but that's kind of what happened. So before 2016, I would be called a much more kind of progressive side of things. And since 2015, I've, I've been much more so on the research informed side of things. And, and then the work that we did in St. Joe's then in those five years before I left was just incredible. The, the children's skills just went through the roof in terms of what they were able to do in the, really kind of from nursery up to year six, but especially the children who were in year one when we started and then they were in year five when I left it was just incredible the standards within that class then and the classes below them were just absolutely through the roof uh, you know as high as any primary school I've ever seen. Never apologize for the length of your answer because I love I love that story for a number of reasons one and um, I'm quite bad for putting people on pedestals and you've and you've just sort of shown that actually even the most um you know, I don't want to use the word famous, but um, well-known and well-read um, members of the education community are just as accessible as everyone else. And, and you know, it's inspirational. You know, you, you just email someone and you know, phone phoning Daisy up, and and she, you know, and from that, so much more has happened. And um, but I, the the main reason I love it is because you have been through that whole experience, and it's not as if you've come into the profession and said, right, this form of teaching, this evidence-based teaching, is the is the best way to do it. You have tried a range of different things. You've evaluated carefully what the efficacy is and what, what it's been like on the ground. And then that has informed your future, you know, decision-making, you know, and I think that's, that's the, the ideal model to approach, you know, because um, if I think about, you know, because I've embraced quite a lot, and I started in 2008 and when a lot of the things that you described were sort of at their peak. Yeah. 
And it's only with the valuation of things like, well, how much time does it cost to do this? And how much time does it cost to do that? And you know, what's the difference in impact that I think you come to a, a well-reasoned sort of judgment on, like you said, what our best bets are. But uh, I think 2015 is is a, a prime year. You know, I think the the conversation opened up. I think you know, and it's mm. great to hear how you've been on that journey. And certainly, I know a lot of the questions that come will focus on where you are now. So what impact has this reading had on your work then and this experience sort of leading to this point? That's the most important question of all, really, is so what? It's always that so what question. So you can do all of the reading that you want and find it interesting and engaging and entertaining, which some of us do, and and maybe other people would uh, find us strange that we love education books and, and, and kind of what we're talking about now so much that we spend our leisure time listening to podcasts and and looking these things up you can do that and that's great and and fine if that's the way you want to spend your time but it's what you do with it that that really matters so what we did with all of that was made sure that all of the staff really understood if we were going to go on this new journey of moving away from kind of experiential learning and more towards a knowledge-rich curriculum which is fundamentally what we were doing why we would need to do that so explaining these things to all of the staff members, encouraging them to read the books, giving them time to read these books, or even just maybe praises of the books. This was really important. And then doing the same thing with governors, trying to explain to governors why we're going to change what we're doing and how we do it. And then, of course, your most important stakeholders, the children, the parents, talking to them about, we've worked in this way before, but now we're going to work in this way. And this is why we think we should do that. Um, and how we're learning from what we've done before. And the, and the great things about the Leonardo effect. And there were really good things about the way that way of working and how we're going to take those ideas and put them together with these other ideas and try and make what we think is the best curriculum the school's ever had. And um, that was really important. So explaining everything and why we were going to do it and how we were going to do it. So we put together a curriculum development team. Now we were a pioneer school officially from January 2017. And like I said, that money came with it. That just accelerated everything. So even though the work really started in about 2017, probably 15 in terms of the looking into it and 16 in terms of the actual doing of, of some of this, this work. 17 really then accelerated everything because we had the funding, we had the time, we had the resources to be able to really kind of go to town on what we wanted to do. And all the time we were staying in line with Successful Futures. So Successful Futures is around knowledge, skills and experiences. And it's around areas of learning rather than subjects but the subjects sit within the areas of learning, or even better to say the disciplines sit within the areas of learning. And so we made sure that we tried to create a curriculum that was in line with this and in line with all of the evidence. So as well as meeting and seeing those amazing people that I've just mentioned, I was really lucky that I got invited by Professor Donaldson, who'd written Successful Futures and is the, the kind of main architect of the new curriculum in Wales, invited by him to go to a conference in Edinburgh as part of what was called the Four Nations Conference. So there were five teachers from Northern Ireland, five from Scotland, five from Wales, five from England. And the idea was to put them together in a hotel kind of Friday evening to Sunday afternoon to talk about their education systems to see if we could learn from each other. And so there were people there like um, Deborah Kidd and Tom Sherrington. And we just chatted and, and that's what it was for. You know, what, what are you doing in England? What are you doing in Wales? How can we learn from each other? So again, these kind of experiences then, taking those ideas back, making those those links, and especially with Tom, he hadn't yet written The Learning Rainforest, but chatting with him about what we were going to do and how I thought we might do it. And I was just about to go to Virginia at that time. It, it, was, it was fantastic to have all these ideas. And so we brought him in to do some training with us then in St. Joe's. And, and then this curriculum development team within the school started to, to do exactly that. We developed a curriculum 
in line with the new curriculum for Wales around the ideas of cognitive science, around the ideas of building knowledge in an intentional way, looking at the real fundamentals of teaching and learning like perception. When you know things about perception within you know, your job as a teacher, what will you then do differently in the future? When you know especially about attention and memory, what will you do differently within your classroom? How will you structure your, your lessons in a particular way that helps children to focus, gets rid of distractions and helps them to remember? Not just within that lesson, but within the series of lessons or within the unit or within the next unit or within the term or within the year and then the next year. And taking all of those ideas and putting them all into ways of working that will help children to not do the Romans, but to study the Romans and to know what it is exactly that you want them to learn about the Romans and why you want them to learn this, why it's important and how then they should learn this and then how they're going to build on that. What, what came before the Romans? What did you study that allowed them to learn this well? And what are you going to study after that will allow them to take these ideas forward? That was all at the heart of everything that we were doing. So create, creating a true curriculum. So not kind of, oh, what might we study? The Vikings is interesting. Yes, it is. It's very interesting. And I know you think so too, Kieran. But if you're going to study the Vikings, why are you going to study the Vikings? What difference will it make to the children's future to know this about the Vikings? What difference did it make to the country of Wales? Did the Vikings come to Wales? If they did, what did they do? What did they change? What did they change about the UK? What did they change about the world? So, so making these choices then as a curriculum development team about what you're going to study, um, what you're going to teach, what you're not going to teach, which is the biggest decision, why you're going to teach it, how you're going to teach it, and what you're going to leave out. These were really big questions that we were asking then, and I'm still asking now. And, and so then we created a curriculum around these ideas that have come from cognitive science, around these ideas of, of it being powerful knowledge, and knowledge that will make a difference to children. Why will it make a difference to children? How should you study it best? Um, they all went into the curriculum. There were, there were some people we had to convince along the way. I had different what are called challenge advisors in Wales at that time. They're called improvement partners now. So people from the local authorities and within Wales, local authorities have joined together to form consortia who were coming in to say about what are you doing and how are you doing it and what impact is it having. Trying to explain this then to different challenge advisors was really interesting. But there were other things that we were not sure about. So, so when we were trying to create what we call domain units, so the units the children study, um, so topics, themes, whatever you want to call them. Um, there were some that were really interesting and some that were not so interesting to the children and, and even to the teachers. And so there were great bits to it and maybe some not, not great bits to it as well. And so you constantly evaluate it and saying, well, shall we keep this in? And if, we do, if this did work well, why did it work well? And where will it go next? Or if it didn't work well, why didn't it work well? Should we carry on doing this? Or should we just try and make it better? Um, and trying to convince the challenge advisor alongside us of being open and honest and saying, we don't think this bit's working. And maybe them saying, yep, I agree it's not. But then not, not going away then saying, oh gosh, you know, worried about standards in this school of whatever it might be. That was really important because sometimes you do have a bit of a dip and, and there were aspects of it that maybe were not exactly a dip, but they didn't go as well as we thought immediately. And we had to invest and we had to take time. And, and probably within about a year, things were fine and looking good. But it, within that year, there were bits about what we were working and how we were doing things, what we were doing, sorry, and how we were doing things that we just had to really think about very, very carefully. And I know kind of that that's what this is all about, Kieran, thinking deeply. For all the time, that's what it was. He was thinking deeply. Is it working? Why is it working? If it isn't working, why isn't it working? And what do we do instead? So that then was really important to have kind of that external scrutiny and so on. Um, and, and there was a, a brilliant moment where my challenge advisor who worked with me, she was great because it wasn't what was going on in other schools that she was working with. It was very alien to her as a teacher herself. It was very alien to, to what was happening in South Wales. 
she was in the show really whether this truly was in line with successful futures in the new curriculum for Wales. And she was an Eston inspector and she was saying, I'm not sure what Eston would make of this. It's so different to what everyone else is doing. But she read Why Knowledge Matters by Hutch because she wanted to know about it. She wanted to know why we were doing it. So she invested as well. And then the one day when she came in and we looked at some books and she said, this child is clearly very able and their book's great. This child is also clearly very able and their, book, their books are not great. You know, what's going on here? And so I said, well, actually, that child just has some difficulties with recording. We know from our assessments, they're performing really, really well. It's just they're a bit messy and they don't necessarily finish everything. But what's going on in their head is great. And we know that through listening to learners and through their assessments. So I said, well, why don't we just get these two boys? Come and have a chat. And they came in the room. They were both in year four at the time. And they chatted with the challenge advisor. And after about half an hour of them just talking about what they were learning, how they were learning it, what was going on now, and how that built on what they'd studied last year and what they could still remember from last year and how that helped them in their current learning was just incredible. And at the end of the conversation, she, the boys left and she said, Gareth, I've never in all my time being involved in anything like that in education, being a secondary specialist as well. She said, those two boys were just the most articulate boys I've ever met. This was incredible. And I was saying, yes, but that's not just it. Those two boys are extremely articulate, but now go and chat with other children who maybe are not thought to be so so able, who, who maybe are not working above it always. And that's what we did. We did more listen to learners and we chatted to them about all the different systems in the school. And she just said, I get it. She said, I know from reading the book what you were trying to achieve. And it's working. And so that was a really, really important conversation, a really important meeting. It wasn't what I expected. We were supposed to only look at books, but chatting with the children where they were saying about all the different things that they knew about animals and, and history and their English work and, and, and all these different things. And it was, you know, just tripping off their, their tongues. They were just incredible. And, and then over time, then more and more people became interested in what we were doing. And in the last year I was in the school from the September to the March when I then left in April. So this is now in the last year before lockdown. We had about 35 different schools come to visit. Pretty much all of them said, your children are the most articulate children I've ever come across. And some of them said, well, of course, you're in Panathis, one of the most affluent areas of Wales. And we were saying, but if you'd have come seven or eight years ago, you wouldn't have said that. It isn't because of where we are. It's because of the curriculum, because of the teaching and learning experiences. And I would say about 80% thought what we were doing was, was good and impressive and they liked it. Within that 80%, there were about 20% who said, I want a job here. You know, I love it. I want to take all these ideas back to my school. The other 60% said, yeah, I really like it. I see what you're trying to achieve, but maybe it's not for me. And then, and then I'd say there was about 20% who said, I really don't like it. Your children are too passive in their learning. You know, they, they weren't up doing carousels. They weren't doing Lego. It was much more, not didactic, although there was, of course, didactic teaching, but it was much more kind of teacher-led in the conversation of the back and forth um, than they were used to. And some of them, one of the comments, which was really strange, was in our reception classroom, children are hanging from the lampshades, and in your reception classroom, they're all on task and doing what they should. I don't like it. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm sorry, but I'd much rather what's going on here than, <laughs> you know, there was, there was all the different sorts of areas of provision you'd want. Children in construction, children in malleable, some in the reading corner, some in focus groups. I don't understand why you wouldn't like this. Everyone, as well as articulate, was saying your school is so calm. It's just really overridingly calm and children know what they're doing. They know what's expected of them and they're all doing it. And, and that just put some people off and that was really interesting. Yeah, that um, that's that sense of purpose that the kids have, you know, it definitely comes across as a tranquility, doesn't it? And you can you can almost yeah. get a feel. Two things that, that sort of jump out to me um, that I'd be keen to know. The first, I suppose, is who was on your curriculum team, and what might 
that experience have looked like for your teachers? So what, what, because obviously they won't have seen all of this going on in the background, you know, they'll have seen the tip of the iceberg to an extent. So yeah, so who, who was on your team and what, what would the sort of experience have been like for your teachers? Sure, so we were one form entry primary school, so it was nursery to year six, but of course we had PPA teachers as well. Uh, so there were 11 teachers for eight classes and on all of those 11, we had five on the team, including me. So kind of 12 of you count me as well. And that was the head, the acting deputy to start with, and then a, a permanent substantive deputy came in and she then joined the team, the nursery teacher and year one teacher who then went down into reception. So we kind of had from nursery to key stage two, used to be senior leaders on the team. And we wanted to have all different ideas. We wanted that. We wanted our curriculum to be a continuous journey from nursery to year six, where it made sense. There was a coherence to the journey. The, the kind of the words that we used were coherent, progressive and rigorous. And we kept on saying that it had to be that. And so what it looked like for them was me saying, please read these books. So buying the books, giving them time to read the books, them then coming back and saying, oh, I find this interesting. I don't agree with this. I'm not sure about this idea. And then helping to write some model units, helping the teachers to write their own. It involved some other schools. Our second meeting of that curriculum development team, three other schools actually came and joined us. And what we did in that meeting was we took some of the core knowledge materials from the US curriculum and we took some of the UK core knowledge materials which were, um, you know, very small in comparison to the US in-depth materials. And we compared it to the programmes of study for Wales at that time. And we said, does it align in terms of the expectations? Is what's going on in grade two in America the same as what's going on in year three in Wales in terms of our expectations? Because we didn't want to go too far away from what was being expected of us kind of in statutory terms, as well as what might happen with the new curriculum. So we'd spend time looking at documents like that, curriculum documents, and we, and we would just chat and plan together. So a couple of those other schools then that came along got involved in a bit of that and their teachers from those schools came to St. Joe's and had a look at what we were doing. They're now interested in that work again and, they, and, they, and they're actually using some of that work now in their school. And so we did some work alongside some of the other schools, but I would say probably St. Joe's because of the money, because of the interest, because of the kind of enthusiasm, we went much faster and much further than the others. But we were quite aware that we were only four schools out of 1100 primaries or however many there are in Wales um, and we were doing different things so we knew that there was a risk here so then when this work then was being implemented by the teachers back in the classrooms those people on that team they would sometimes join the teachers for the PPA and they would ask them you know about their planning about the implementation how's it going what should we change is the planning format working for us we we designed a curriculum model that had four stages stage one is very similar to the Loud Effect, where you grab their attention, you want to engage them. You might know them as immersion days or wow days or whatever else they might call it in other schools. So if you're studying the Vikings, for instance, what are you going to do on that day to grab the children's attention? So still things like if you're studying something to do with flight or whatever, you might bring in owls on those days. You might get the children to dress up as Vikings. You might get them to make shields. You'll introduce them to longboats. You might watch a film or part of a film. You'll get them to listen to maybe music of, of kind of Viking times, read Kenning poetry. You know, all those things on one day to try and immerse them in this. And then on that day, we say, right, these are the things we're going to be studying for the next six or seven weeks. And what would you like to learn about those things? What do you think sounds interesting to you? And then stage two is what we call knowledge acquisition. So the children then in the knowledge acquisition stage are building up their, their knowledge of the Vikings. And this is teacher led, as in we have decided as a, as a curriculum development team, what will be on that plan, on that domain unit. 
So we are going to tell the children what they are going to learn about the Vikings, because we know there are key ideas and concepts that we want them to build on from before and to build on later. Stage three, then we always do a, an extended piece of writing. So in our discrete English skills teaching, which we also use from the Cornell's curriculum, which is brilliant and free, freely available online and a brilliant, brilliant English language curriculum. We were teaching the children to write and read really, really well in those lessons. And then we were giving them lots of really interesting information in the domain lessons. And then when we came to our stage three of our domain unit, we then put those two things together. So we would get the children to maybe write a story or a non-chronological report or a newspaper report. And then the children's writing was amazing because they could write really, really well because we taught them how to write and we'd given them ideas of what to write. And they didn't have to sit there thinking, hmm, what shall I say here? They could write, they achieved sort of almost automaticity with the punctuation side of things or with spelling through their English skills lessons. And now they just were able to focus on, I want to have a really engaging diary entry about the life as a Viking uh, or whatever else it was they were writing. And so then that stage three was really important for us kind of to, to see what children had learned and how they'd learned. And then stage four was to celebrate what they'd learned and maybe to take it further. So at stage four, we gave a little bit of freedom to the children. And we said, remember, at the start of this domain, you wanted to learn more about longships. You thought they were really interesting. Well, now's your chance. You've got a couple of lessons where you can do a bit of research about longships, or you can make a longship, or you can write a poem about longships, or you can compose some music that was in line with what we have studied to do with Viking music. And, and there was a little bit of freedom there to both learn more and inquire and to celebrate what they'd learned. And, and, and often the children would say, can we put a museum together of what we learned and inviting the parents? That seemed to be the favourite thing they wanted to do. So we would let parents come in and see the children's work and maybe make a, um, a display of the children's work and, you know, what, what they'd actually physically made, like their ships or like their shields or whatever it was, alongside their writing, alongside maybe their videos that they'd made in iMovie or PowerPoints or whatever it was. So that's kind of how it looked. And we made sure then that that, that model was working. And stage three in the model didn't work particularly well. In fact, it wasn't even there really when we started. And then it became a very, very important part of that model. And that came from the teachers evaluating and saying, we think there's a missing element here and we think the missing element is extended writing. And so that curriculum development team was all about them being involved in that work and evaluating it and trying to plan for improvement. Excellent. So it's, it's representative of the, the teachers across the school and supportive of them at the same time. You know, a lot of the key, you know, sort of markers that I have in my head, you know, the fact that you've taken the time, you're reflecting constantly and you are giving teachers the support for instance like you say refining the curriculum down into what needs to be learned can either be really difficult because you've got too much or because you've got too little you know if I, there are certain parts of english history that i couldn't possibly even begin to think about because we just didn't cover it you know and so yes yeah, so you're like yeah that, that sounds like a, like a fantastic process and and uh, something that's both beneficial for the teachers and the pupils it sounds awesome and um, so the next few questions I'm going to use, I'm going to draw on the, the sort of publication material from your recent Eston report at St. Peter's, you know, so hopefully I'm not embarrassing you by taking quotes out of the, um, the article. And I suppose the first one says that through our exciting curriculum, we focus on pupils' well-being and provide engaging learning experiences to develop valuable knowledge and skills. You may have already gone some way to answer this, but if you had to condense your approach to curriculum into a set of guiding principles, what would they be? Another great question. And, and possibly, um, just a little bit of context here, Kieran, the reason we had a recent testing inspection was because St. Peter's was in special measures. And so I joined St. Peter's April 2020 when the pandemic had, had really just hit. Estin had to then re revisit the school, just like Ofsted would on a regular basis. 
Um, but of course, they hadn't been able to for a year. So this was the first time that Eston had been in for a year and the school had been in special measures since October of 2018. Going in, the teachers said, all we know is change. We've had six heads now in two years. Nothing is embedded. In January, they'd had another acting head who was there until March. She'd changed lots and Eston had liked the changes that she'd made. But again, it'd only been in place a couple of months. Whatever you want to do, do it. Um, which was quite an incredible place to be. And for a group of teachers and senior leaders to say that, what was a, a gift in so many ways. I'd met with the senior leaders remotely, even before taking post often, and found out what they thought was good in the school, what wasn't so good, what we needed to change. And we decided to change everything, which, which sounds crazy, um, but we did. So, so we just said, right, we're going to start from scratch. We're going to create a new curriculum other than for RE, which in a Catholic school is, is kind of given to us as a curriculum anyway. So everything else is up for grabs. And I was able to spend some time saying, this is what I believe in. This is why I believe in it. And I was able to do quite a lot of training that I wouldn't have been able to do if it weren't for the pandemic. We had more time together. And I was able to say, these are the aspects of cognitive science that are going to inform our work. This is what you need to know about perception, attention, memory. This is what you need to know about curriculum development and how curriculum development works and what the evidence suggests should work for curriculum development. And let's go from there. So, so we, we used lots of the materials that had come from St. Joseph's, of course, although we weren't trying to turn it into a kind of St. Joseph's 2, then did some other things. Like, for instance, we didn't follow the same maths curriculum. We decided to go in a different direction. We used complete maths instead of maths, no problem, which I'd used in my previous school, and both of which are, are really good curriculums, by the way. To come back to your question, which was, what are the principles, the guiding principles, and what would they be? These were the things I was telling the teachers about right at the start. This is what we have to do. We have to be intentional and plan thoroughly. So we have to create a curriculum where we know what's going to be included and why it's going to be included. And we have to make really important decisions that can change later. But for now, we need to make really important decisions about what we include and what we don't include and why it's included. And we'll try and involve stakeholders in that process later. So we'll ask the children, we'll ask the parents, we'll ask the community, we'll ask the governors, we'll ask everybody what they want to be included. But now, emergency mode, we need to make improvements quickly. What are we going to include and how are we going to include it? So, so that was the first thing is plan, be intentional and plan thoroughly. And we did that together. Um, the next thing was to create another curriculum development team. So to have that same kind of process and even though I was saying, right, these are the things I want you to study and why I want you to study them, this will evolve and you might not like some of these things and we don't have to do these things. And if you can find something better and tell me why you think it's better. In other words, if there are topics, as, as they call them, that you think have gone really, really well, then fine, we'll stick with that. But we have to know why. So that curriculum development team kind of came together and had some chats about that and making those decisions about what to include and, and what not to include are really important. Something that hadn't been considered, uh, and I find this quite incredible now when I think back to what I was doing with curriculum work back in 2012-13, and what schools are still doing, was about building on prior experiences and prior knowledge. And I find it incredible that the school had just recently created long-term maps. For instance, in one of them, one of their topics was going to be called Ola Mexico. And so I said, and, and they said, oh, actually, this, this was a great topic. Um, the children enjoyed it, staff enjoyed it, and I said, okay, what about the topic was good, and you know, they, they were able to tell me and show me, and I said, and what did it build on, what did the children study in this school in maybe reception year one, all the way through to year five, what came before it that helped the children to learn really well about Mexico, and what key concepts 
were involved in that topic were the children studying so was there anything to do with democracy that they're studying or or kind of power or mountains or rivers or you know what was it about Mexico that you were studying and and they couldn't answer those questions at all they never even thought about that they kind of googled Mexico and found some interesting things to look at with the children and, and so what they quickly came to realize is that you have to have an inter- build a curriculum that builds on what's gone before and so even though we're now year five and year six we wouldn't be able to do that because things have changed so much over the previous three years nothing was constant we said well where possible if we can't in terms of the topics build on what's come before let's at least do that in terms of you know key scientific principles and concepts so you know what when did they learn about plants when did they what what did they learn about plants how can we build on that in the upper year groups what did they learn about the human body how can we build on that what did they learn about the animal kingdom how can we build on that what did they learn about materials and their properties how can we build on that so so that would be a definite guiding principle is to make sure that you have threads going through your curriculum all the way, key concepts are always built upon, and that you're always thinking, what have the children studied previously and how are they going to build on it? And where is this going to take them next? And I think that if you were able to do that, not just within a school, but across a cluster of schools or a mat in England or whatever that might be, that would be much, much more powerful. Um, Especially if you imagine children coming into year seven, having had similar experiences in their primary schools, where they know in year seven what they're building on, you know, how incredible would that be for a key stage three team? The next thing I would say is to think about that curriculum work in terms of schema. So something we've been doing in St. Peter's is actually trying to plan out kind of almost like a model schema. So of course our minds don't don't exactly work in that way. You know, I'm, I, I can't tell a, a four-year-old until they're a time of 11 exactly what you're going to know about trees or exactly what you're going to know about mammals. I can't tell them exactly because they'll have all sorts of experiences outside of the school that they'll bring to that. And they'll have things that they'll forget along the way as well. So I don't, won't know exactly what they're going to learn about these things, but I can inform it as much as possible. And I can help them to remember it as much as possible through the ways in which I teach those key ideas. So when you're doing curriculum development work, try and think what might a nursery child schema be of plants coming in and what do I want it to be like when they're going out of year six or even try and think about it as a 14 or 16 year old and then try and create units of work what we call domain units that will help that to happen so in that kind of again going back to the foundational principle number one sort of thing be intentional and thorough map out that schema actually draw it as a map and say I want them to know this and it links to this and it links to this and links to this and we've done a bit of that in St Peter's and I've shared that with some other schools about democracy especially. And we look at how children in year one are first introduced to this idea of democracy within our kings and queens domain. And they look at the ideas of monarchy and they maybe look a little bit of parliament and there's even a little bit of Magna Carta in there. And then they look at in year two, ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, which is one of the chronology units that's absolutely brilliant. And they look at the absolute power of monarchs and even divine right. And then they might look at some other ideas here about democracy and they're also learning about the school parliament that we have like a school council and how children get to be part of this and then in year three they're going to look at the greeks and now we're really going to go to town on this idea of democracy what it was democracy then what is it now what are the foundations guess what women couldn't vote is that really democracy you know how as we would think about it neither could slaves is this not necessarily is this right in terms of making judgments but how does this accord with what we think and then in year four we're going to maybe study the romans and we're going to look at how they took the Greek ideas on and they, they had different strata within their society. Oh, guess what? They've maybe moved on in some other ways since the Greeks, but not a great deal in others. And then maybe when we go up in now to year five, we're maybe going to look at 
more to do with UK and the Industrial Revolution and the Chartist movement and the Chartist movement in South Wales, of course, because all the time we're trying to think about world history, UK history, Welsh history, local history. So we're doing all of this all of the time. Let's think about what happened here as the children then maybe going to year six. Let's have a look at emancipation. Let's have a look at devolution. Let's have a look at what the future of democracy might be. Wow, gosh, can you believe it? Now 16-year-olds in Wales can get to vote for the first time. What do we think of this? And so that idea of how children might build their ideas of democracy from those early foundations in year one through to, compared to most schools, a really sophisticated understanding of what democracy is and the history of democracy in year six says everything you need to know really about what we're trying to achieve through the curriculum. So when we do that across all of the different ideas, pushes and pulls and forces, magnetism, whatever it might be within science, within history, within geography, within music, within health and well-being, that is really what's formed what I've done previously and is informing what we're trying to do now in, in St Peter's moving on to the curriculum for Wales. And then all that, of that idea about teaching for attention, so saying, if we know we're going to be building on this, and we know we're going to study one thing in November of year one, and they might not come across those ideas again until March of year two, that's a long time in between. So what will you do in between those times to just remind children what retrieval lessons might you have in there that will just bring these ideas back? So teaching for attention in the first place, and then kind of along the way as well, thinking about how that's spaced along the way. Aiming for mastery would be another guiding principle. So especially within maths, within English skills, phonics, spelling, punctuation, but even within art. So are you teaching the children how to draw a hand, how to draw an eye, how to study, how to look? So teaching for mastery wherever possible. We're trying to do that within PE lessons to come all the way back then to kind of where we started is thinking about at a whole school level. So never look at an individual year group or individual unit. Always think about the big picture. How does it all fit in? So, so that would be how I would say all schools should be looking at how they should develop their curriculum. And then after you've done all that, leave a little bit of room. So what Tom Sherrington calls mode B, so going off piste, project work, debates, child-led inquiry, trips, trips for their own sake, bringing in uh, a quartet or somebody who plays the oboe just to sit and listen, to have that experience, um, just an experience for its own sake or for the sake of their love of learning, their own interests, that joy in being in school, so having that as part of your curriculum as well, in, in both a, a maybe a planned way and an unplanned way, and make sure you leave room for that. Because one of the things that we did wrong in St. Joseph's to start with was we overplanned. And I would say probably most schools when they're going down these routes will overplan. Well, I think you're going to have a lot of phone calls about people inquiring about jobs in South Wales. And in terms of you know the schema that you that you map out. Is, you know, and this might be a really mundane question, but is, is it a linear sequence or is it a map, in like a, I'm thinking a spider map, that then becomes part of your linear sequence? Just, in, you know, because I reckon I certainly will be taking this back to school and saying, let's have a go and look at, at, at what the schema might look like at the end of a, of a given uh, sequence. Sure, yeah. I'll happily share it with you and you can put it, I don't do, um, with your notes for this, for this um, podcast. I'll, I'll happily share the democracy one, especially because I think that's one that I've shared with other schools. And it, and it kind of, it has different images of this is what it will hopefully look like at the end of year one, year two, all the way through to the end of year six. And you'll see how it kind of explodes in year three with the ancient Greeks. It, it is exactly that. It's like a concept map. So it is exactly that. So it is a map. So yes, there's the linear bit of doing what people like Andrew Percival advocate, which is when you plan your units, just simply put into word, find democracy 
or power or monarchy. So put words in and have a look at how many times you cover these things and when they're covered. And that is really important. And it's helpful alongside that, planning it out in a, an actual spider diagram, like you said, is really helpful. And I don't think I've seen that maybe anywhere else, but we found it as a curriculum development team in St. Peter's a really interesting and helpful way to think about things. And again, like I said, it doesn't mean that that 11-year-old girl going out of St. Peter's will actually have that schema in mind. Education is sort of like mind control, as in we're informing children's minds, but we're not, it, we, we can't control it so much that we know exactly what it would look like. But we can try and make it that they will learn the things that we want them to learn and that they will remember those things and be able to build upon it. And ideally, what we want is for them to be so interested, they go home and they learn all sorts of other things, which is exactly both in St. Joe's when we started working this way, and now in St. Peter's, what we found is that so many children want to know more about these fantastic things we're studying, is that they do so much at home. They do much more kind of independent research around these things than they ever did in, in previous ways of working. So, you know, it, make, it always makes me laugh when people think of knowledge rich being this kind of dry teacher at the front telling them exactly what they must learn in, in lists. And it's great for the pub quiz, but it doesn't mean anything to anyone else. As you would know, Kieran, it isn't like that at all. The children absolutely love working this way. They, they are so engaged. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I think I'll be immensely useful because quite I'm thinking of Neil Almond and he had to have uh, the whole view of his curriculum, you know, that he was working on over the last maybe three, four years. And, you know, if, if you have the, you know, if they're able to, you know, when they look at the example for democracy, having that picture of, well, this is how I can keep control of all of the stuff that I need to have in my head. And then, like you said, support pupils and getting that into, into theirs, which is in sort of the crux of the job, really, isn't it? Yeah, and even things like um, when you're looking at that and then you realise that actually we're, we're also looking at the rule of law and how important that was to the Roman society. Um, you know, it was the foundation of their society was that they had laws and people had rights um, and that they could have a fair trial and, 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 you know, people maybe necessarily don't always think of about that in Roman times, but then how that relates to democracy and democracy can fall apart without the rule of law. So, so it kind of goes wider than just the one idea as well and, and trying to include that in there. And of course, what you need to have then is another map for another term that comes off this and comes off this and comes off this. That's truly what would happen, is that they all, they all then link back to each other. It's a, it, it reminds me of um, the LaSalle maths universe. And if you had someone who was really good at coding and could create the St. Peter's, you know, conceptual universe or um, curriculum universe, then, you know, but I think... That's exactly what it's like. It's exactly like the, the LaSalle maths universe, exactly like that. The report noted that there is a, a clear vision for teaching. So, and we've, we've sort of mentioned this already, you took on your current post right as the pandemic was gaining momentum. You know, I remember you told us in February that you were starting in five weeks and then the next five weeks were some of the craziest <laughs> we could possibly have had. Um, so what, what is your vision for teaching? How did, and how did you embed it during the last year of all years? Um, and I suppose then leading on from that, was it any different to how you were thinking about your approach when we discussed it in February 2020? I probably shouldn't have said earlier, it was almost like a gift of pandemic. It's a, you know, it's a horrible thing. But what I mean is the time that we were given because of it was something I didn't expect. So when, when going into St. Peter's, I had a bit of a plan and that was, I knew I would bring Teach Like a Champion to the school. So wherever I would work, I would want Teach Like a Champion to be part of that work. So I knew that. But in terms of the rest of the curriculum, I thought I'm gonna go in and observe for a term so between easter and the summer i'll find out what i think is working and what isn't and then develop a vision alongside my colleagues and then starting in the next september we would take it forward from there and of course there was nothing to observe 
everything was happening at home. I had to try and have a look at the little things that I could look at. So I physically was going into the building, you know, maybe looking through a few books at that time and I'm chatting with teachers. I quickly found out those things I mentioned earlier, the fact that there wasn't a lot of coherence in the work. There wasn't a lot of rigor necessarily. St. Peter's was a really interesting school going into special measures because standards weren't particularly low. So even though they had recommendations for teaching, literacy, numeracy, ICT and Welsh, which are, uh, uh, as well as recommendations about leadership and governance and, and safeguarding and so on. So there were lots of recommendations, but if teaching literacy, numeracy, ICT and Welsh are thought to be unsatisfactory, which they all were, that's pretty much as bad as it gets in Wales, as in they're the only statutory areas that inspectors will look at um, f around those things. They won't say geography is unsatisfactory. They don't look at that. They only look at those four areas and then teaching overall. Many children leaving the school actually had good standards and there were some incredible standards. There were some, some children, children who were doing really well in terms of their books, in terms of their, their test outcomes and so on. But there were also a, a, a big uh, group, maybe towards the kind of working below end, who were very, very weak, who were very, very poor. And so what, what became apparent through talking to teachers is that they had this idea that you should differentiate four ways and the differentiate activity um, and they were keeping the children who are working below expectation down in what they were providing for them. And they were also being told at the same time as this to make sure that their actual direct teaching was at the highest possible level. So they were always teaching to the top. So they were delivering to the top and providing to the bottom sort of thing. And, and, and by the way, I banned those words in the school. You're not allowed to call children top and bottom. But in terms of where the, the working abilities of the children were at that time, children who were good were doing really, really well in terms of their work. And then there was a, you know, a, a larger group then of children who were fine, but there was a, a larger lower end of children then than you would want to see of children who were really low. And this was because of the structures that were in place in the school. This was because of what the teachers were being told to do. So the teachers were really committed and really hardworking, but they, they didn't really have a long-term curriculum map. They were Googling everything what shall we teach next week and how shall we teach it? And they knew this and they knew that that was cost, costing them a lot in terms of their work-life balance as well because they were spending so much time reinventing the wheel every year, planning from scratch, making it up as they're going along. We, we said, this is not how a curriculum is supposed to be. This is really not how a curriculum is supposed to be. This is what a curriculum is supposed to be in terms of all those ideas I've already talked about. I then introduced them to the ideas of Teaching a Champion and said to them, Look, it's a struggle for us now as a school to buy the books, but buy the book yourself. And this was right away in April. It was the first thing I told all the teachers to do. Buy Teaching a Champion. You will get reimbursed. We'll give you the money back when the school reopens. But I want you to read it by September the 1st. So by September the 1st, you have to have read all of Teaching a Champion. And as much as you can then go beyond that and watch the videos and look at online and look at the criticism of Teaching a Champion as well. And all the people who were talking nonsense about it being castral pedagogy, you know, look at all of that. And, and then and then we'll go from there and then for anyone who else is interested in these ideas also read Willingham also read Christodoulou and and then these are the things that are going to inform our practice and in September you're going to be teaching in a new way and it's going to be along these lines and and as with every profession every walk of life you had some people who read all those books and some people who read just the teacher champion that was fine that was what I asked of them as a minimum and then there were lots of questions that came so people were saying, oh, I can't believe this. This is what I've always thought, but I was never allowed to work in this way. Doug Lamov's ideas 
are very similar to how I think I'm teaching, but I can see how I could make it even better if, or the consistency across the school will really help us with this. There's kind of like, um, I call it the double helix that I believe in, in terms of um, the way I think schools can and should be, that I want to be involved with. And, and, and this again is informed by Willingham. In his book, When Can You Trust the Experts? Willingham talks about the inner environment and the outer environment. But he says, if you think about the inner environment and the outer environment, in terms of what's going on in a child's mind, and then everything that happens around the child that informs what's going on in a child's mind. And so what I say is, in St Peter's, is we can make the best possible classrooms that we can in terms of the, the, the layout and the design and what the walls look like and stripping everything back to have no distractions and how you're going to make it that every second of the lesson is purposeful and used by the children. And how can you have the highest ratio within your lessons of children doing the, all of the, the hard work, the children getting the work out, as Doug says, instead of the, the teachers? How can we create an environment in which that happens to children all of the time? So the room itself, the physical layout, the way you structure your lessons, and then how can we make the curriculum and our teaching for long-term retention, how can we help our children's minds, the inner environment, give them the best possible chances to learn in the best possible ways? So the double helix is kind of what's going on around the child, and then what's going on in terms of our teaching that will then help the inner environment of the child. And so when these two things then come together, and you make everything as research-informed as it can be to, to provide the best possible experiences, that then is my vision for teaching. Everything has to be intentional. You're not allowed to say, oh, that chair looks nice in the catalogue. Let's buy that chair for the classroom or those chairs for the classroom. Or let's make a reading corner that looks pretty. It has to be, why are you doing that? Know why you're doing it. Evaluate how it's going. So, so, so kind of have a look at six weeks in or three, three months in. Is this working the way I thought it would? And if it isn't, what am I going to change to make it better? So that, that's what I've tried to help all of the teachers in St. Peter's to have right from day one, is this idea of, be, this idea of being intentional and evaluative so that all the time you're thinking about what you're doing and how you're doing it. That is exactly what's going on and that kind of vision for teaching that Estin liked. The reason they liked it was because all of the teachers could say that to them. So when they spoke to the senior leadership team, when they spoke to the teachers, they all said this is how we work and this is why we work in this way. And it was that consistency of everybody understanding what they were doing and how they were doing it that, that, that came across as a coherent vision. Yeah, you're, you're empowering the teachers in that situation, aren't you? you know, I, I love the fact that you've given them access to the, the four Ds and then said, Let, let's, let's see what we can do based on that and, and that review, you know, because one of the things, you know, and I think I talk about it on here all the time is about the why that we do stuff is one of the most powerful things, for instance, in an inspection situation where you're the expert or the relative expert, certainly in nine out of 10 occasions. And it's about having that confidence to say this is this is why we do what we do um, and then when you do have teachers who feel that way about what they're doing you know they want to stick around because you've got that enormous sense of um, self-esteem that comes from efficacy but also the pupils benefit enormously don't they you know, well, yeah, oh, it, which is what it's all about it's always coming back to that it's keeping the main thing the main thing what i absolutely loved was that by christmas I think about five different teachers in the school had come to me independently of each other and had said, I'm now teaching better than I ever have. And some of them were a few years in and some of them were 15 and more years in. And, and they hadn't had that conversation with each other. They just all had made this realisation and had come to, to express that. And, and, and what I wanted equally was if anyone thought it was the opposite and if anyone thought that what we were putting into place was getting in the way of how they wanted to teach and how they should teach, then I wanted to know that too. 
because I said to them early on, my job is to remove all possible barriers from you doing a good job. So it was brilliant that they, they came and they voluntarily said this, I'm teaching in better than I ever had before. And that was of course, because of the programs that I'd given them and they were using like the core knowledge curriculum from the US, which again, I'll say is freely available online. And it is a brilliant, brilliant English language curriculum, but also the domain units that they were writing themselves or that had been written by teachers in St. Joseph's or we'd got from the Cornell's Curriculum UK, the Cornell's Curriculum US and other places too. And, and, and all the time I kind of put things in there. So I'd say, oh, there's this really important blog by Claire Seeley. Would you mind reading that? And then we'll chat about it. There's a chapter by Neil Almond in um, the curriculum book from Research Ed series. Will you please all read this? And then we're going to talk about it on our next inset day. So all the time we were thinking about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And all the time we were trying to go back to these people who write in such great ways and saying, what do you think about those ideas and how can we build on that? Um, and what's incredible to think is all that sort of started back in April remotely, but really in person. That only started in September. Then in January, we had another lockdown for, for three months. And yet by the end of the summer, the progress that the children had made across the school was better than anything the teachers had ever seen before. So even in this year, the children's progress in terms of the numbers, so using things like the school had had a long history of using the Salford reading test, so we've carried on using that. And then we use the assessments within the complete maths curriculum. The progress the children made is incredible. And that's a double-edged sword, because it means it's great that what we're doing is working, but I also feel sad that it means that for some children, what they were getting before wasn't working because they shouldn't be able to make 17 months progress in their reading in six months. That shouldn't be possible. But that was the average in year three. The average progress in six months of year three was 17 months progress. But then, of course, in the summer term, it was much smaller because they'd made all the leaps that they needed to make. And it wasn't just that they got to where they needed to be. It was that now, on average, all of the children in all the year groups were now actually further on than the Salford averages. That, um, and similarly in the maths, through the complete maths curriculum and the way that we're teaching maths, because alongside all of this, and something I haven't talked about at all, is the intentional way in which we teach maths. And, but also the delivery of that has been done in, in a way using your work and using the work of people like Craig Barton and Mark McCourt has, has again meant that the children's maths progress has been much better than any of us could have expected in that time and within these conditions of three months being remote teaching. Yeah, that, that's fantastic to hear. I, I, I totally get the, the double-edged sword. And, and, and this is the thing I think that is always really interesting and important is so much of the work that I am really interested in and I like is criticised. And whether it's by professors in universities within the US or the UK, or whether it's, um, you know, books that have come out like Guy Claxton's books, um, where he says there are no bad actors in this, but then goes on to criticise people for the ways in which they're trying to spread these ideas. And, and all I found when I've tried to take the research and implement it in my schools is positive outcomes. And, and so it's great to say, this is what the research says should work. And then it does. Um, and, and that's all it's about. It's not about political affiliations. It's not about who you're trying to please. It's just about, are we helping the children to learn in better ways than they used to learn? And if we are, let's carry on doing it. Some of the things that were mentioned in the report were a strong sense of teamwork and collaboration, confidence and trust among staff and high expectations of I think this is a quote from you, our, our children and staff members. So sometimes high expectations of staff can be used as an excuse to work them into the ground, you know, like churning them out and bring someone new in repeat. Now, 
I would find it very difficult to imagine that you fall into this group. So I'm, you know, it's, it's inconceivable. How do you strike this balance and what allows you to get the most from those you lead in the way you so clearly do? It always has to go back to the why. So don't just say do this. You have to tell them, these are the things that I think will work. These are the reasons that I think they will work. This is what I would like you to do. And this is how I'd like you to do it. So, so it starts with the why, and then it's the what, and then it's the how. Again, to come back to that thing about COVID, providing more time with my staff than I expected to have, and how that worked in our favor, that was really important because I was able to almost have kind of like um, free inset days because we had days where we had particular year groups in where we were testing systems. And yes, of course, we tested the systems, but that also gave us many free hours in the day back in the September of 2020. In those free hours, I would sit down with the year one and two teachers and I would say, this is the curriculum I want you to follow. It's called the Core Knowledge Language Arts Curriculum. This is why I like it. This is what the research shows. This is what you can do with it. Have a go. I don't want you to do any short-term planning. Just follow the teacher's book. It's so detailed anyway. I'm going to save you time in terms of having to copy it from one book to a sheet for the sake of it. Handwrite on there what you think won't work and what you think will work and what you're going to do and how it went. And then come back and say what you think. And then again, with the complete maths curriculum, lesson planning takes minutes instead of hours. So teachers were now planning their week's worth of work in a much smaller space of time. But what they were doing then was using all of that time that they used to spend on just filling in sheets, preparing lessons and thinking about how they were going to deliver, talking about this with teachers and saying about why this is important, what the research shows, telling them how it should work, what they were going to do, and then to help them to give them time to reflect on it. All of that meant that people were thinking about what they were doing and why they were doing it. One interesting thing that happened was that in the June, so I started in April and then in the June, I did a, a session one afternoon on a school day. So the teachers had delivered their lessons in the morning with the children and had given them work to do in the afternoon. I did a session for about an hour and a half on the simple view of reading and linked it to different parts of the science of reading and had said what the simple view of reading is and then Scarborough's reading rope and talked about all these different aspects just in an hour and a half, you know, and really you need hundreds of hours to look at this in great detail, but just in an introductory sort of way. And in this, I said, and I know that you only started using letters and sounds in the last 18 months, but I think that we might move away from letters and sounds because I think I've got something better for you. And what will happen is you'll use all your great ideas and what you've learned from using letters and sounds, and you'll be able to put that into the new curriculum instead. And I could see the faces of the foundation phase teachers in the video call where they were saying, oh, but we've only just you know, spent all this time and we think that it's having success. And instead of us now just plucking it from thin air or teaching phonics in the way that we thought was right, we now have a program to follow. And this is the first time we've had a program and it's, and it's sort of working. I then had to have follow-up meetings with those teachers to say, these are the things that I think are wrong with letters and sounds. And these are the things that I think are in the core knowledge skills curriculum that aren't in letters and sounds and why I think it's more comprehensive and why I think it will do a better job for you. And so I had to try to convince them of why I thought it would work, but also say, and you know what? If it doesn't work, then let's just go back. If you think letters and sounds were better, we'll go back to it, it's fine. I then again gave them some time and said, you know, look at the lessons and 
look at the materials and didn't just do that in a kind of free way, but actually sat with them. By this time, we were kind of back in the school then end of June and July. Children had started to come back and actually went through it and said, you know, look at this. And they were saying, oh, I've never thought about doing that before. Oh, I haven't done this before. Oh, I can see that would, why that would be so interesting to children. Oh, I can see that how that would build on what I was doing before. It was probably by October half term that the two reception teachers came to me and they were the ones who were the most worried. And they said, we love this. This is far better than letters and And they, they were kind of within that five that I was saying before. And, and so they would now go out to any other school and they would say, follow this curriculum and teach in this way. Because although the children maybe are not doing as much writing as they would have in previous curriculum, their reading is much better than it's ever been. And no child is being left behind. So we're teaching for mastery. Every single unit that we cover, we do an assessment and we check to see all of the skills and knowledge that we've taught the children about the shapes of children writing swirls before they're writing letter A's and writing vertical and horizontal lines and diagonal lines and X's and all these things that will eventually go on to their writing, physical handwriting skills, which will lead to their other kind of writing skills and spending time doing this with the fine and the gross motor skills and all these things, the foundational work. So much more time was spent on that Whereas in the past, they would jump into trying to write a postcard by the end of September because they were told to, because they needed to have evidence of literacy across the curriculum. And instead we said, don't be so silly. Children can't even write some you know, words yet. Don't try and write a postcard. Don't overwrite. Get these foundational skills right. Teach children to read from left to right. Make sure the sound discrimination is there. And then their ability to recognise the graphemes and translate that into sounds and so on. And do all that foundational stuff with all of the children and don't leave anyone behind. And if three children still haven't got it, don't move on. Make sure everyone gets it. And now by the end of reception, they said that they would normally have 20% of the class where they would be now left behind and they'd only recognise a few sounds. And now all of the children can all recognise all of the sounds, all of the letter sounds. And okay, they might have moved on to digraphs or whatever else with other groups and they don't believe that that's going to hold them back but now in year one they'll be able to really fly because they've only covered six digraphs now whereas they might have covered far more than that by the end of reception normally but the solid foundations are there for all and so they said we know now what's going to happen we can see that when they go into year one now they'll start off in a better way and i was saying i can tell you they will because i know from my previous school that by christmas they'll be absolutely flying and by the end of year one the children will be further on than they would have been through any other, anything else that you might have used before, because you're doing it in the right ways. Explaining that and spending time with my reception teachers and all the other teachers about saying, this is what we're going to do and why we're going to do it, and sitting down with them and listening to their concerns, maybe even tweaking things along the way to suit their practice, that was really, really important. So always, always being open to them, allowing them to share their ideas and their concerns. I think that's why there was an element of trust and teamwork and collaboration, because it was always doing it with them, always with the staff. By Christmas, there was an amazing sense of camaraderie. So everybody was saying, look, when you're in special measures, it's a horrible place to be. There's a dark cloud that's over us all the time. We're all in this together. And if we're going to get out of this and provide the children with the best possible experiences, then we need to all be on the same page, working in the best possible ways. And we need to all understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, th and that's what happened. So no nobody fought against it. Nobody from Nursery to year six, 20 odd teachers, nobody said, I don't want to do this. I don't think it's right. I don't like teaching the champion. Everybody said, my gosh, this is amazing. We used to have good behavior. Now our children are so engaged in the lessons that it's absolutely amazing. We say start and the children all sit and start and we've got all of their attention. And we're able to just deal with those tiny little distractions in such a way using the least invasive intervention where I can just go over to them. And instead of shouting across the classroom, Kieran, look at me. I just now go over and I say, 
or I, I might even start by saying I'm waiting for one or I go over and I see Kieran when I had everyone's attention then you weren't really paying attention next time you need to all of the techniques of teaching a champion all of the curriculum from the core knowledge the complete maths all of the things we designed ourselves they all kind of go together and it just all works as a package and so because everyone saw this and they saw the amazing results that they were getting quite quickly and then we were able to translate it to live online lessons very easily everyone was sold and, and by Easter everybody said look this is exactly where we need to carry on going in the future so it was always done together and what has happened here is two staff members are leaving but not because they didn't believe in it but because the two people applied for senior leader jobs one wanted to go on to be a deputy one wanted to have a TLR and, and there wasn't any room for that within our current structure but when they had their interviews the heads that came in for those schools to observe them said oh my gosh I love the way they're teaching this is amazing what they're doing is fantastic and then in their interviews they were able to explain why what they're doing is working in such a coherent way their answers to their questions were of course much better than they would have been a year ago they both got the job and one of the heads said to me I've given her the job because she's now going to come and do all those things that she's done in your school and teach all of my staff how to do that so she was one of our teacher champion leads. She's going to now come to my school and be a teacher champion lead in my school. And she's going to make all my teachers do those things that, that you're doing in St. Peter's. So, you know, as much as it's sad to lose people, it's brilliant to know that you're going to have more of an influence on the rest of the system too. Yeah, that's marvellous. So if, you, if, you, if you're ever, you know, feeling stressed and tired, you can just think about how that's going to mushroom out over time, yeah. you know, and, and that person will have an impact. And, and so what you've started, you know, will have a profound impact on, on quite a few children, I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, and what was really important with that was the fact that all of these things, like the curriculum development team, teacher champion team, it was never individuals. So we even have a retrieval practice team. So everything's done by teams. And that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it's not just you then. So, so the, the two people who are in charge of retrieval practice for us now and leading the school in our, what we're doing on retrieval practice, they both read Kate Jones's first book and they, they contacted Kate and she made an amazing video for them. And like everyone, it has been fantastic. Nobody ever says no. Everybody says, of course, I will help you because everyone is a good actor in this. Everyone wants to help the system, but they're doing it together. So now if one of the, if, if those two leaves, I've still got someone else and I can then fill that gap. So on my teacher champion team, there are four of us. Two of them are now leaving, but because it was a team of four, I still have then me and my other colleague who will still lead that work and someone else will come in and fill that void. So we created capacity always as well. And that was really important. So that people felt like they were leading things in a collaborative way. They could ask each other questions, whether it was Zoom meetings at home and that was their choice in their own time, or whether it was times in school where we'd given them time to work together and invested them in that way with cover and financially so on. They always felt like they were covered and they were doing it in, in, a, in a way that would benefit everybody. Um, and it was never just, I'm going to lead an inset session. Nobody's really going to care. Everyone's going to yawn. They're going to go away and, and not do anything with it. That just hasn't happened. Everything has had an impact. It's sewn into everything you do and, and the behaviours of everyone in the school, um, you know, driving that forward. So, yeah, I, I can see how that can be both, that can be really supportive for teachers. And I think the last question with a direct link to the report draws on a reference to how they've had access to a wide range of professional learning opportunities, you know, to develop their understanding of effective teaching. What opportunities have they had and what is your approach, which I, I think it's permeated this interview, to be honest, um, your approach to professional learning? Again, to come back to what, why are you doing it? So too much of my time as a head in the early days of professional learning was, oh, I've seen this great TED talk let's watch it together and chat about it. Or I went on a school visit and I saw this really interesting thing. Let's chat about it. And then three months later, people would say, oh, remember that thing? And then nothing has happened. 
or it happened for a few weeks and then it went away again. And I was really guilty of that as a head teacher in both leading that and making that happen and allowing it to happen with other things within the school. And so I'd say that for now the last five or six years, it's always been about saying, what do we want to improve in the school? What do we want to do in the school? Why do we want to do it? And how will we build professional learning that will make it happen? The interesting thing about doing it in St. Joe's was that because we had the time and the money and the freedom because of the pioneer school status, we felt like we were able to work in a way that was a, a bit slower than I'd say what's happened in St. Peter's. We were able to say, let's try this. A couple of months later, we'll have a look. We'll see if it's going to be embedded. We'll see what we have to change. Maybe a year later. Whereas in St. Peter's, we had to say, we're in special measures. We want to get out to special measures as soon as possible. And yes, what we want to do is be sustainable and we want to create great capacity, but we do have to push things through in quite a quick way. So we had to decide what were going to be the most important things that we needed to do. But I did say to the staff, we're going to bring in the core knowledge skills units and we're going to bring in the complete maths curriculum. And then those two things with Teach Like a Champion is more than enough for any school to take in on one go. Within a month, they convinced me that we should also bring in the domain units alongside it. And I would say, no, it's too much. We just can't do that. A school can't take on all those things. You know, we can't, can't completely reinvent everything in, in one go. So my, my friend works in the BA hangar and they take in a jumbo jet and they strip it back and they take out the engines and they take out every seat and every bit of carpet and every light in the aeroplane. And basically it's only the kind of the shell of the aeroplane. And then they put it all back together and they call it a major. And I was saying, my gosh, you know, to be able to do that in St. Joe's took five years. We can't do that in six months in St. Peter's. It, it's not realistic, but it is what we did. And, and we did it because the teachers asked for it. And they said, everything's new. Just do it. If, if you think it's going to work, tell us how to do it. Tell us what you want. We'll work with you. And, and let's just make it happen. And they were unbelievably hardworking. The teachers were unbelievably hardworking. And I would love going into the staff room and hearing them talking about these things and hearing them say, how did that go? Or, yeah, I've, I've done this and it didn't quite work. Or I've done this and it was brilliant. Or have you thought about doing it that way? In our professional learning sessions, we then, I'd say probably about a third has been on Teacher a Champion. So we selected which techniques we were going to implement in the school. And we started off with the ones around classroom culture, that part of the book. And we said it would probably take about six months for them to become embedded. And by Christmas, they were fully embedded. They truly were. And we said, OK, then we can now bring in some more techniques that we hadn't expected to bring in until maybe after Easter. But let's bring them in now. And we were able to even able to do that with some of the remote teaching, too. We were able to accelerate what I thought was possible because the staff were so hardworking, so willing to learn. And, and basically so capable. And to be told you're an unsatisfactory teacher, but then to actually be so capable was, was, was incredible. Or to, I should say teaching in the school was unsatisfactory rather than individuals being unsatisfactory. But it wasn't the case that, you know, as, as a team, they were great. They were really talented. They were really hardworking. So they were, they were teaching in this, these new ways. The professional learning was having an impact straight away. And then we were able to say, okay, what else might we do? So we agreed that it would be about curriculum development, cognitive science, teacher for champion, and, and maths, as well as skills. After about six weeks, they had seen some of the things that I'd been doing in St. Joe's, because in St. Joe's, we put together guidance for everything. So we had a guidance document for retrieval practice for the teachers, and a guidance document for whole class marking and feedback, and a guidance document for this, and a guidance document for that. And we put all these together into a booklet, which we used to give to visitors when they came to school. And so some of the staff members in St. Peter's had this booklet, and they said, oh, this whole class feedback and marking sounds interesting. That probably sounds better than what we were doing before. Can we know more about that, please? And I was saying, oh, gosh, can't take on another new thing now. And he was saying, but our work is not great anyway. So, so I said, well, OK, this is what it is, and, 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 and this is how it works. And again, they just got it, and they just did it pretty much from the start, and they've carried on doing it. And so some things were planned, like we knew we would bring in retrieval practice 
after Christmas. We knew we would be bringing in Teacher for Champion in September. We knew some of the COGSI work was going on in the summer, even ready for September. But some of the things have happened because the teachers have said, what are your views of assessment? How can we do this better? And they just keep saying, how can we do this better? The professional learning was mostly planned in a, in a time-scaled way, but also some things happened much faster than I imagined and in at a much deeper level than I imagined because the teachers just got it. They just did it so well from the start. Excellent. So it's like a combination of preparation and flexibility at the same time, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, all the time checking. Is it working? How do you know it's working? So those senior leaders, then doing their job of checking, so they would have to go in and they'd have to look at the books, they'd have to talk to the children, listening to learners, chat with the teachers. The, the, the idea of, of coaching with Teacher Champions, so going in every couple of weeks and seeing what's going on, not for lesson observations, but just checking how it's working. And, and again, one of the things that the teachers loved was this idea of a full lesson observation with a graded lesson, of course, which we threw out straight away. And even though for performance management reasons, we still had to do maybe full lesson observations. And but most of the time it was through coaching. So most of the time it was coming in to say how well it's going with your star and track me. Is everybody tracking the teacher when you want them to? Come in, watch 10 minutes. Yep, tweak this, change that, improve this. But that all is going so well. Coming in for another 20 minutes, looking at something else. Coming back in to look at something else. And just giving positive feedback each time, but also maybe one thing to improve for next time. Oh, when you were delivering the scripted lesson for the read aloud to do with Mesopotamia, maybe you went off on a tangent about your childhood and it was interesting, but actually it lost the children's focus and they then didn't get it back. So maybe don't do that next time. So, so just stick to the bit that you're teaching and maybe do that at the end of the lesson. But for now, try, try and make sure that the focus stays on the thing that you're teaching. And then your, your talk then will be much, much more pertinent to what it is that you want the children to learn. So this kind of feedback, but also helping the teachers to know how to observe each other to give that feedback as well so going in and sitting alongside them and saying did you notice that yes i noticed it right this is how you tell the teacher what to do about it so working with the teachers on allowing them to have the ability and the capacity to do that in the future as well so then it's not the head doing it anymore but it's the head alongside the senior leadership team alongside the teacher champion team and doing those things and then it just becomes collegiate and then it's no longer oh my gosh i've got an observation it's great kieran's coming in to watch me for 20 minutes I know I'm going to learn from this. And when he comes back in two weeks time, I know I'll be better at that thing he told me to be better at. And it is like that. It's just constant improvement. And it's never, oh, that was terrible. Or you're not doing this. It's just always, how can we make it better? Yeah, that's a, that's a really powerful model. I think it hits all the key markers and, you know, and the reaction your teachers are given, you know, it shows how invested they are in, in their own development as a result of that. So I think on the, on the same, a similar theme, we're talking about research ed earlier on. You played a center role in the organization of research ed Cymru. I think the research ed with the strongest PR game, you know, thanks to the inimitable James Wise. What was it about research ed that made you want to get involved in this way? And how do you see its legacy developing over time? These are all such good questions, Gary. Um, so research ed is, um, I believe, a, a brilliant organisation for helping teaching and therefore the world to be a better place. And there is so much good work and goodwill in the research ed movement that I find it only positive. And I find that anyone who has criticism or the detractors of research ed, I, I really don't understand their point of view because all those people that I've talked about earlier who might be linked to research ed or might not be linked to research ed, they've all been so welcoming. Every person that I've said, I, I phoned Claire Seeley just like I did Dave Christodoulou and said, I'm a head teacher as well. Can I come to your school please? And can I have a look at what you're doing? about your three-dimensional curriculum that you're talking about. And she said, yeah, come along. 
and we went to London, my deputy and I, and then she came back to St. Joseph's and Panath, and, and, and we just shared ideas. And then I'd like to think that maybe there were some things she took back to her school, and I know there were some things that I took back to St. Joe's. So everyone within the movement is just so friendly and welcoming. So I've been to only three events myself. I've been to Birmingham, London, and of course, Research Ed Cymru. And everyone I met on the day, sitting there listening to great speakers, we're always in it together. There was a great feeling of it being truly a grassroots movement. And we're all saying, look, we're willing to give up our time and a little bit of our money, whether that's travel or the, the, the very small price of the ticket, to be here to try and do a better job. And kind of, why wouldn't you love that? And okay, it might be a minority of, of teachers that choose to spend their time in that way. But for those who do, I think that then when they go back to their school, that then, like you said, either kind of mushrooms or fans out. And that kind of enthusiasm and those ideas then spread to other people. And so Tom Bennett laughingly calls it the Hydra. But it, it is a bit like that. There are tentacles and there are different parts to it. Because it does spread out then, it does have this, this knock-on effect of it being the classroom next door to you or your whole English department in a secondary school or actually in Wales. Or what can we do with humanities in the new curriculum because of these ideas that we've learned? And I think that it spreads out in that way. So I first saw Research Ed online in about 2015. I was a couple of years into the movement by then, maybe, when I became really interested and just followed things from afar for a while until got that contact from Tom Bennett and he said, I'd like you to come and be involved. Went along to watch how Birmingham did it. And Claire, of course, did a brilliant job with the Birmingham events. And she's amazing as well. So, so friendly and so welcoming. Got some ideas, took those ideas back, discussed them with others, and, and then happily linked up with James Wise. But that again was through this kind of movement. So what happened is I'd been looking on Twitter to see who in Wales has the same interests and ideas that I have. And there weren't that many of us, um, I would say. I would say there are far more people in England, maybe who had similar ideas. So I kind of wrote down the names of people who I liked what they were saying on Twitter, and then I made contact with them. So people like James Wise or Damien Benny or, or, or lots of different people who were saying what I found to be interested, interesting, sorry, and just contacted them and said, you know, let's have a chat, let's get together, let's see what we can do. And then we all agreed that bringing research into Wales would be a great thing. And I was able to say, well, actually, Tom Bennett's made contact and then James through being a teacher in Cardiff High was able to convince his school to be the host school and, and I know that they they loved the day and benefited from it too and then James is James James is brilliant in what he does I think his wife works in PR as well so he pinched some ideas from her she helped him a little bit and so he you know that Twitter profile that he created Red Cymru was just absolutely brilliant you know all of those things like you said it had the best campaign going out there I think and and, and it really was and it just created such a great buzz before during and after the event so the legacy of it was the most important bit. We wanted it to not stop there. And, and I think probably other things might have happened if it weren't for COVID happening within weeks of that event. But still, we've kept in touch with lots of people who we met on the day, people who contacted each other and kind of said, oh, I've seen you on Twitter. And, oh, it's great to meet you in person. That's what happens at Research Ed events. And then they've made contacts and they've gone off and chatted with each other and they've done work together. And, and all these different pockets of work have happened. And I'd like to think that we've even changed the conversation within Wales and even change the conversation within the preparations of curriculum for Wales, having maybe much more of an understanding about the role of research, having a more of an understanding about the role of knowledge, especially because in the early days of curriculum for Wales, lots of people were talking about it being a skills curriculum and inquiry curriculum, which Donaldson never meant for it to be. And we were saying, no, it's about balance. It's, you have to have really important role of knowledge upon which you build skills and give great experiences. So those conversations weren't happening in Wales four or five years ago, and now they are. And I'd like to think that um, the research ed movement and our research ed Cymru has played a big part in that. Definitely so. You know, you can tell that uh, 
that it was that something very special was happening. We've said, we've said this to you before, and um, so hopefully before long we'll be able to get back into a position where we can, you know, meet up with those like-minded individuals again in the, in the one place. And so, do you have any advice for those in areas without their own research aid? You know, I'm thinking research aid Alicante, research aid Tenerife. You know, places with like slightly more tropical climates, you know, for instance. Do you, is there anything they need to know before they apply to host an event? Be bold. So it might be unusual that I kind of make contact with all these people and say, I'd like to know more. I've read your book, but I want to know more. Almost everyone I contacted, David Dido, Martin Robinson, Mary Myatt, Claire Seeley, some of them I'd already had links with through other things I'd done, but some of them didn't know me at all. And yet I contacted them and said, we think you'd be a great speaker for Research at Cymru. Would you please come along? And even though you know that they're not going to get paid, they nearly all said yes. And the only ones who didn't say yes were because they had prior engagements. Be bold. Ask those people you want to ask to come along and speak because that's the most important part. Try to have a a good and interesting campaign that gets people to want to be there, of course. But I think where we certainly sold out and had a waiting list, and I think that's often the way for, for these events. And then make sure that everything you can do in the planning stage is as easy for the speakers and everybody who needs to be there as possible. So I hope you welcome the emails I was sending you. Um, you know, this this is the train timetable. This is how you get from this place to the other. We're, we're looking forward to this event in four weeks' time. We're so grateful you're going to come. So those kind of emails beforehand as well, just telling people and, and genuinely meaning it. You know, I'm, I'm delighted you can come and I can't wait to meet you. Genuinely meaning that. And I hope that comes across as well. But then, but then making it easy for that person. So saying these are the roads in. This is the place. Please arrive by this time. This is the time you're going to be on. And hopefully that comes across as well, organised and professional then. And James did a brilliant job with the booklet as well and all those sorts of things. So I think every event wants to try to do as well as the previous events and maybe even bring in something a bit different or raise the bar in some way. And it's not a competition. It's all about working together. But if we can learn from each other, then that's brilliant. That's fantastic. It's how we want it to be. And I also had some people sent me their materials. So some people from other research ed events actually sent me things and said, this is what I did to organise it. And I would happily share mine too. Yeah, no, the, the correspondence was was extremely valuable, you know, A, because it was the first time Lloyd and I had spoken at Research Ed, and, you know, it, it just sort of put us at ease that, you know, we knew what was happening, we, um, you know, we had contact with you guys, but then things were changing so rapidly on Friday night, Saturday morning that, you know, Neil and Lloyd were reading nine emails in the car to me at like nine o'clock saying, you know, this is where we are now, and, you know, yeah. it almost, um, it definitely helps you prepare mentally. You know, for what's uh, what's the story? Yeah. So um, yeah. So I, I definitely do think that comes across really strongly. I think the more research aids we have, the um, the better served. You know, lots of us will be. You know, because these islands are quite large. You know, I suppose in respect to the rest of the world, not necessarily. But you know, like you say, if you would, if you were coming to London, you're t- you're missing a weekend. You know, it's yeah, not, yeah. not as, it's, whereas I can just take a forty minute uh, train. You know, so. I think if we have them in lots of the, the different parts of the of the country, then you know the conversation can just build and build and build. I am um, I take five teachers every well, for the last four years, last year excluded, take five teachers to the the national conference, and then they're people who are hearing the same message that I'm trying to give, but they're hearing from the people who have either thought of the idea themselves the first time or have them, have, um, you know, that outside credibility, you know, it's not just me banging on about things. And it, and it's, it served me really well because we're now having conversations about research on the, on this level that I never thought was necessarily what people were interested in. So it's fantastic. And that's and, so important, what you just said about not being a prophet in your own land. 
because it's really hard to be a proper dinner man. So in St. Joe's, especially when you've gone in one direction and then you change direction, you know, they, they could easily have said to me, but you told us it was all about 21st century skills and discovery. And now you're telling us it's all about knowledge rich and cognitive science. Hang on a second. And they could not have come with me. So explaining the why I think was important and also evaluating together and seeing what was good and what we needed to change was important. But also getting people in, bringing Tom Sherrington to come in and do an inset day for us. And not even just for us, but inviting other local heads and consortia staff, local authority staff, somebody from Estin came. All of those things were important too, because I knew that this was the road that we were going down in St. Joe's, but I needed key partners to know what we were doing and why we were doing it. And again, at the end of that day, when Tom was there, one of my teachers, again, who was a reception teacher, funny enough, but in, in the other school, she said to me at the end of the day, oh, that was a waste of time. I'd heard all of that before. We've already studied all of that in a jokey way. But of course, it wasn't a waste of time at all because it was just affirming everything I'd already said. And so for our staff, that was brilliant because they were getting to hear it from somebody, you know, this kind of Twitter celebrity with his 70,000 followers, I think he had at that time and many, many more now. They heard those same messages from him. And that was great for them to have some reassurance that we weren't just one school doing these maverick things in Wales. Oh, no, actually, there are other people working in this way. And then for the consortia staff and the other local authority staff and so on that were there, they were saying, oh, I can understand a little bit about now what St. Joseph's doing and why they're doing it. And those other heads who were there, they were just a little bit interested then. And they then wanted to do a follow-up visit a couple of months later to come and see what we were doing and why we were doing it using those same messages. So internally, you can't be a prophet in your own lands. You need people to say those things. You need to hear other people's messages. But also, you can spread those messages kind of slightly wider than you as well. So taking people along from your own school, but from maybe people who are not convinced to, to the research air conference would be a great idea too. Yeah, I think then the machine sort of propels itself, you know. And so I think that leads nicely on to curriculum for Wales. You know, how do you see the changes going? You know, what are your best and worst case scenarios? And what do you think needs to be in place to meet the laudable aspirations we've explored? So the best case scenario is that schools in Wales are much better in five years' time than they've ever been before, and that children's learning is better than it's ever been before, and outcomes at the age of 16 are better than they've ever been before. The worst case scenario is that the disparity between the best schools and the worst schools and the highest performing students and the lowest performing students increases. And I would say right now, both outcomes are possible. And so people have already talked about how the implementation of Curriculum for Wales is going to be the most important thing because it is a framework. It doesn't tell you in great detail what to do or how to do it. What it does is it gives you a little bit of direction and then says, and now do it in the way that you want to. That could be the best thing or it could be the worst thing about the whole curriculum. So I think that schools who take the time to think and plan and do their research and do their reading and do visits in the ways that I hopefully have described in this podcast, I think that those schools could do a great job. And I think that schools who work in collaboration with each other could do a great job. But I think that there's so many mixed messages out there. And you've got private organisations talking about how this curriculum is inquiry curriculum. And you've got people in quite senior positions still calling it a skills curriculum. And it isn't. And it really isn't. And Donaldson himself will tell you it isn't those things. But if it's interpreted in that way, and if it's implemented in that way, and if the enacted curriculum goes down those routes, then the difficulties we already have here in Wales will just be compounded. And so we're at the stage now where the last round of actual GCSEs, so not the kind of last two years where it's been on predicted grades and, and 
teacher assessment and all the rest of it. But the actual last time that children sat exams, the English language exam outcomes were so low, they had to lower the bar to get a C, I think lower than they ever had before. If that is made worse, and if children by the age of 16 have less knowledge and lower skills than they have now, that will be an absolute disaster. And, I, and I'm not, not saying I think that will happen, but I'm saying that I think that will happen in some schools. And it possibly that will even happen in some whole areas. If, however, people listen to the correct authorities, being the Welsh Government and Consortia, who are giving good messages, and they're saying that it's about knowledge and skills and experiences, and you have to be thorough, and you have to be intentional, and you have to base it on evidence-informed practice, then we could be okay. And there are some clusters out there doing some great work on this, and they're building a common curriculum that is based on those ideas. And you don't have to bring Teacher Checker Champion into your school, but you have to have a vision for teaching and you have to know what pedagogy you want and why you want it. And the schools that do that well, they will do better than ever. So I think that probably the divide will grow, but if those schools are then seen as beacons and centers of excellence and other schools learn from them, I think that things could be okay in the end. So I think that there, we're, we're at a point where there are two definite outcomes. Things could be much better in five or 10 years time, but things could be worse or five or 10 years time. And I'm trying to work with lots of other people who are trying to influence the debate in an intentional way so that we have the first of those outcomes. We're trying to say to people, please take notice of the evidence. And you might not have to agree with every single thing you read and hear, but just know about it and know about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, and try to make it that you're evaluating all the way through. And if you think that this new curriculum based on inquiry and discovery isn't working for your children, and if you think that now they can't read at the age of nine, as well as they used to, never mind things getting better, then change what you're doing and realise that it's not going in the right way. And so, yeah, so, so you mentioned right at the start about um, being part of the Conversation for Wales. And I, and I do try to be part of the Conversation for Wales. And I try not to be preachy and I try not to say to people, you have to do it in these ways, because I don't think that's my role. I don't have any authority in any of this. But I do say to people, please try to read. Please try to find out what's out there. And let's all try to do the best job we can by having great conversations. And there is definitely a culture in Wales where people see criticism as a bad thing and even critique is a bad thing. And it mustn't be. And it must be that we have open conversations. And if we do say to each other, actually, I'm not so sure that that's a good idea. That's not saying I don't like you. We have to have a really mature argument and saying ideas are what we're debating and ideas are what we're discussing. And it's ideas that we're criticizing. And it's fine to criticize an idea. It's not personal. It's just saying, maybe look at it another way. And if we can have those discussions and arguments even in a really mature and productive way, things can and could go really well. I really hope that that happens here. You know, you've outlined very clearly just how important it is that that does happen, you know, because it's the futures of countless children that are at stake. Yeah. You know, I think it's what's really come across during this chat is how both dedicated you are to improving the life chances of all children but how you facilitate growth and development, you know, through the, you know, and it's almost like it's been acting as a reminder of me to be, to be more tempered in how I approach similar kinds of conversations and stuff, you know. So I think, you know, I, I really hope that, uh, that you are correct and that you sort of, you take those steps as a, as a country. Um, yeah, maybe I think the idea would be to get this episode to as many school leaders 
in Wales as possible. So I might need to second James onto the, the PR team. <laughs> yeah, really, really. He's, he's a good guy for that. It's been, it's been wonderful to talk all things education with you today, Gion. I think all that's left to do is say thank you very much for being here. I told you it might be a long time, Kieran. Thank you too. <laughs>